Hello, uh, wherever you are, and whoever you are, welcome. This is the Rogue Philosopher Podcast. And I am the Rogue Philosopher. I did not choose that appellation for myself. Uh, however, I do like it very much. Uh, Dr. Jesse Workman, the Rogue Philosopher. This is my podcast, the Rogue Philosopher Podcast. Thank you for coming and listening today. And thank you for being a guest. And your presence is appreciated and acknowledged. So I just want to introduce myself very quickly, my interests. Um, what has inspired me to attempt to do this, it's a fierce market. There are a lot of excellent philosophy podcasts and lectures out there uh, already. There's thousands. If you do a simple Google search for philosophy lectures, YouTube, philosophy, M-O-O-C, there's still a lot of M-O-O-C courses where you can go into the iTunes store and you can find innumerable and unlimited courses about different aspects of philosophy, uh, religious studies, uh, postmodern cultural critique, and cultural criticism. I'm sure all of your uh, academic, social justice, all of those types of things. Technically, I belong to a minority, although begrudgingly so. Uh, uh, I'm totally blind, which does affect my outlook and my interpretation of certain things at certain times. Um, I do not subscribe uh, to the idea that, that I or other disabled like me, or more severely so, can do exactly everything exactly the same way or in different adaptive ways, that sighted people can. Okay, this is not an anti-egalitarian uh, uh, statement. It's a fact. In, in many spheres of life, in spite of improvements in many ways for us, we still and we will always need assistance in certain ways from other people, more so than a sighted person or a fully non-disabled. I guess, I guess in the disability rights uh, uh community, they call these people tabs, like the soda, tab, okay? Temporarily able-bodied, okay? Because the, the postulation uh, is that um, at a certain point in becoming a mature senior adult, you will be afflicted by various physical, neurological, uh, uh, organ malfunction and or other diseases that might damage the nervous system. Uh, so everyone, uh, vision loss, uh, anybody in the world, everyone, every human being, we are all going to die. Okay? But unless um, we are killed in accidents, we're going to mostly die very slowly, painfully, and miserably. And during that slow, painful, miserable process of death, you probably will be moderately to very severely disabled, depending on how long you live. I don't think it would be wise for us to categorize hospice patients uh, or patients that are in uh, palliative care as disabled people because they're, they're in the terminal and final stage of, of life. Yet they, too, are probably weak, weakened, um, unfortunately, in a great deal of pain, even though we have adequate medicines for pain control. Um, it's uh, unfortunate. Um, 
that we still live in a culture that functions on gradations of value, all the while pretending to be egalitarian. So if there are gradations in value, you cannot express your uh, intellect, your skill, your, your drive to be ahead of the rest of the pack. So they're still judging you by standards of, of uh, graduated rankings, right? But all the while spewing out nonsense about egalitarianism, right? Uh, e equality of output, which is a, is a horrific idea. I, um, I've been studying a lot about that recently, communism, socialism. Um, uh, this isn't a political podcast, nor will I be uh, uh, always engaging with wider social issues. I'm not a social activist. I, I really, really flee from that identity politics. Uh, I'm too busy trying to actually live my life, thank you very much, and to achieve some modicum of the American dream. It's, um, we still live in a competitive country in a lot of ways, fortunately, and we still live in a country in some spheres still that is a meritocracy. Well, I mean, in any event, I have a doctorate in philosophy, religious studies, and cultural critique, hence my understanding of postmodern thought. Uh, my primary interests um, fall under the rubric of the question, what is real? That is a metaphysical statement. I'm more drawn to those questions than to the moral issues, what should I do? Okay. Uh, or, uh, I'm drawing a blank on Hegel's three questions, I attempted to look them up. Uh, how do I know what I know? That's epistemology, right? The study of knowledge. What does one know? That kind of dovetails what I'm interested in, what is reality? Because in order to comprehend the reality and break it down in a way that's intelligible and understandable for you or for your interlocutor, you have to know. You have to know what it is. And so you have to ask yourself the question, how do I know what I know? Okay. What can I do about it? What do I do about what I know? Is ethics. Okay. Because it's, it's guiding a course of action. Okay. Uh, so that question, uh, is ethical. Any, any study of philosophy that falls under ethics, uh, perhaps beginning with, uh, Aristotle's Nicomachean, uh, we're probably the, the foundation of that whole field, that one book by Aristotle. It's Aristotle is a thinker I must engage with more deeply. Uh, I guess another question, I don't know if it's in, listed specifically in Hegel's three primary questions, uh, but who am I, I think is an important question. That's anthropology. Who is humanity, right? What are we? How? Who? What? Where? You know, all those things. Where are we coming from? Where are we going? How do we engage our lives if we are not religious, if we're atheist, for example? or even agnostic, does it change how you engage your life? What is a human being in the first place? I'm more interested, although all those questions have value, but there are people far more intelligent than I who are studying the ethical side of things, or the cultural critique side of things, perhaps. 
Um, I'll address this in a different, another recording, uh, specifically the three questions of uh, Kant, Immanuel Kant. Uh, his dates are 1724 to 1804, in case anybody's interested. It is his works um, that are the source of um, what um, uh, we might think of as the study of ethics without religious overtones. Um, Kant really did something unique when he separated out ethics uh, from religion, where he basically, basically he said, look, uh, religion, uh, we cannot speculate about that because we cannot experience directly the, uh, the divine. He uh, doesn't appear to take into account the many mystics who have lived across the centuries who have experienced God and they've done so in a manner that is hard to explain outside of space and time. Uh, it's Kant's contention that everything we experience and the only way we can truly know something is by experiencing that object in space and time. Uh, spatial, three-dimensional, right? We interact with various objects in our world. And time, the duration of time through which you're, you're uh, engaging in this task. Um, it's a bit of a tangent, but one might argue that Hegel, who thought he was completing Immanuel Kant's project, uh, is actually the foundation. He is the origin, okay, of postmodern thought, of modern, of modern day, uh, those aspects of postmodern thought that have to do with relativism, uh, that have to do with hermeneutics. I'm throwing a lot of very. I'm sorry. Let me um. Let me try to simplify. Um, Jörg Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel. Okay. Um, German, which I really can't speak any German. The languages I have a little in are uh, Hebrew, Spanish, French, and I shall study Latin, uh, if I can because I really regret not studying Latin in high school. I was very stupid. I should have studied Latin. That's the source of everything. And anything that's written, the, the, best, the best way to read St. Augustine uh, is in the original language. I mean, that's just obvious. In any event, um, okay, uh, drawn from the uh, barely Christianized German nation of the mid-1800s. Uh, heathendom and, and, and chaos uh, made itself apparent about a hundred years after Hegel. So between Hegel and Marx, who was Hegel's student, that was, <laughs> that was the uh, origin of, of the Cold War, of uh, everything that happened in the world under the regime of the communists, the source of all of that is Hegel and Marx. In fact, Marx, a lot of Marx, is simply Hegel reformulated uh, to fit his revolution. Uh, especially the idea of dialectic, where you're, you're using uh, uh, you're using a sort of a, um, an abstract means 
of engaging and uh, absorbing concepts in historical development. Now, Hegel believed that it was time for us to grow up beyond uh, religious concepts. Although he, he recognized the beauty in uh, Christianity and in the New Testament, the Gospels, he really wanted us to take the next step into pure abstract thought, pure consciousness studies, pure. He wrote a book, his most important work, uh, the one that did the least damage, I think, um, of his writings, uh, The Phenomenology of Spirit, which is very sophisticated and difficult, and I barely have a grasp. I'm not a Hegelian. Um, what I know of Hegel uh, makes me want to run screaming and hide and never come out again. Uh, but in any case, I, in fairness to Hegel, he was uh, a great thinker, which is why we still study his work almost 200 years after uh, his life. He, his dates, I believe, are 18, 1770 to 1831, I think, are his dates. So he was able to study with, engage with the works of Immanuel Kant. And he genuinely believed he was correctly finishing Kant's project. And that's too complicated to even begin to engage in an introductory uh, ramble. So, Hegel, foundation of postmodernism. Uh, and then you have Friedrich Nietzsche, who all of you know. I'm certain, I'm 100% certain you all know Nietzsche. Okay? You have Soren Kierkegaard, who was, he's always grouped in with Nietzsche. And in many ways, his work is very similar. But he's coming at it from a theological, philosophical perspective. Oh, he's still a philosopher. He's engaging it as an exceptionally devout uh, and very neurotic Christian. Uh, then you have another kind of uh, uh, a triad. You... Often Nietzsche is grouped in with Dostoevsky and Tolstoy, Leo Tolstoy. I'm willing to stand by my words a second time. I would expect nearly everybody listening to this knows who these men are and what their writings are. Modernity came and went, and by the 20s, early 30s, you had begun the journey to postmodernism over a 30-year period which is the period I'm most interested in in terms of my dissertation and my work. I studied philosophers in a movement called uh, phenomenology, continental philosophy. Continental means German and French. Uh, that philosophy which based itself on continental European thinkers as their foundation. Okay? It's different in analytical philosophy. Analytical philosophy, uh, English English philosophers, in particular, uh, uh, any of those that had anything to do with logic. So we're talking about uh, very mathematical uh, structures. We're talking about uh, word calculus. Not mathematical, but, but 
words constructed in logical syllogisms that, you know, if A, then B. If B, then C. A, therefore C, right? Socrates is a man, okay? All men are mortal, right? If A, then B. If B, then C. Socrates is a man, therefore Socrates is mortal, right? Logical constructions. I, I think you. I think they're they're called they're called. Uh, uh, is it verbal calculus or or is it? Eh. Well, anyway, that that the origin of that is American pragmatism uh, and British um, uh, philosophy. Gosh, I'm blanking on the name of it. What's the British philosophy? Someone like G.E. Moore or, uh, or, or Bradley, okay? Or even John Stuart Mill with, with his uh, utilitarianism. Um, he's definitely not, con I don't believe he is considered a continental thinker. Uh, so there are several threads. Uh, but I am a continental, I'm steeped in, in continental thought, which means that much of what I studied comes from a place initially which it's more of an inductive logic and it, and a lot of philosophers in the continental tradition are rightly rejected okay and and we would do well in our camp to critique them as harshly because and there are some uh, thinkers out there okay in the postmodern era so from 1960 let's say 1960 one up till now there are some thinkers um of whom it can be said that their work is calamitously in error and that their methodology is is more destructive uh and and really offers it doesn't really offer an alternative view or perspective that you can learn. It offers an alternative method and methodology to uh, deconstruct. Um, a lot of postmodern thinkers see a very Manichaean uh, world laid out before them, and it all has to do with power politics and identity politics and uh, oppression, because it's Marxism. It's Marxism... Uh, that's been reformulated by French thinkers, primarily Michel Foucault and Jacques Derrida. I have some familiarity with their work, and as far as one can be familiar with the kind of sophistry that they engaged in, um, a very destructive, uh, a very misguided and misleading, almost fraudulent, although that's a little harsh, although I disapprove of and I object to their work in all of its forms and all of its branches and roots all the way as far as the East is from the West. I've, I've gone through enough experiences that have taught me that much of postmodernity, neoliberalism, uh, this sort of hardcore authoritarian leftism, has no room for anybody who actually thinks for themselves about things. And doesn't like being told what to think. I would be equally against a totalitarian regime on the right. It just happens that the totalitarian uh, um, 
leftists are winning the battle at this point. I mean, they, they've, pretty much, they've pretty much won the culture war. Unless the argument is rephrased and reformulated, which it's happening on uh, a lot of alternative uh, media sources... Uh, the intellectual dark web, I guess is what they call that. That's a good thing. I'm very happy. And even if I don't agree with everything, I'm very happy, and you should be too, that there is an intellectual dark web and that there are alternatives that are legitimate. These people are highly intelligent. This isn't the promise keepers in the 90s, okay? This isn't, this isn't and, and, and I'm certain that as far as their humanity goes, they're good human beings. They're good people, which is why they created such a movement in any event. Uh, but I wouldn't think of that movement as a fount for engaging intellectual questions in any event. If I'm wrong, I'm willing to be correct. I'm always willing to be corrected because I, I enjoy learning very much. I enjoy learning very much. And my interests are continental philosophy, various thinkers, uh, mysticism in many of its forms across the West. I'm interested in, a, in a Western esotericism, occultism, uh, the history and the modern um, practitioners of said occultisms, various uh, esoteric systems. I'm saying it so broadly because they all draw me, but I'm more drawn to Western magical traditions and the study of Kabbalism and Christian mysticism. I have some interest in Sufism as well, but I'm more interested in the West, in, in the, the, um, the mysticisms of the West and the history of religions as derived from the beginning of the Western traditions. The Zoroastrians, um, the Greeks, uh, the Neoplatonists, Plato, the Neoplatonists, I've had less acquaintance with Aristotle, which I'd like to remedy that. Um, I've become increasingly respectful of Aristotle. So, uh, and then I've studied some theology, uh, but far less than uh, philosophy. And even more than the philosophy, I took more classes uh, built around cultural criticism, postmodern or even post-postmodern uh, social critiquing. Um, in a lot of instances, this doesn't mean they're suggesting an alternative way that might be superior to the way we're going now. It means their idea of critique is destruction of the offending uh, concept, as if one can do such a thing. Okay, That's Hegelian. Uh, what do they call that? Mm. Um... It's, it, I'm blanking on that. I'll go into greater depth than Hegel. But he basically, Hegel has the idea that you have a statement, and this is dialectical, the statement, A is true. And then the exact opposite of that statement, no, B is true. These are contradictory, irreconcilable statements. But you do combine them. Okay? And that's synthesis. And that's where you've taken these ideas... And you are evolving to uh, the next concept, a higher concept. Hegel is so, so abstract. It's, it's maddening. Um, why can't I think of that? Blah, blah, and blah, blah, synthesis. I, 
can't think of the other words. Oh, well, never mind. Um, I also have a lot of interests in literature. Uh, my other two degrees are in, both of them, in writing. Uh, uh, this, it seems like quite a dramatic left turn to go from writing programs and liberal arts into philosophy and uh, scholarship, study of religious history and theology, etc. I say that because I had some background, but I was mostly self-taught, so I couldn't take a piece of paper and hold it up and say, yeah, I've my master's, here's my master's thesis uh, in this topic, blah, 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 uh, how many angels dance on the head of a pin, etc. But I don't agree. I think if you dig deeply enough, it's a very natural progression because all of the issues that are brought up in literature are also addressed in, in philosophy, less so in theology, but even theology engages what is the human being, what is real, uh, how do we know what we know, blah, blah, etc. But their goal isn't to, um, the theologian's goal is not to explicate and clarify, uh, in most cases it's not, how we live in the world, because Christian theologians don't see value in the world. They see value in Jesus Christ and in, in heaven and in salvation of your soul. Okay, I don't think anybody will oppose me on that statement. Any Christian, you will ask them, what are the most important elements if you boil down their faith and their creed to its most uh, simple and foundational constituents? Okay, what would that be? It would be the Nicene Creed, right? I believe in uh, the, the Father or whatever, and the, the Son, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, who died, uh, went to hell and, and freed, you know, the harrowing of hell, freed the damned souls of, of uh, virtuous pagans from hell, who rose from the dead uh, on the third day and, and ascended to heaven bodily uh, and will return. I mean, the Nicene Creed, uh, that's something that, I can't recite all of it from memory, but that's what I mean. You're not a Christian if you don't believe these things. If you, uh, if you don't uh, believe that, if you think he was just a man, and a lot of us think this, oh well, he might have been a historical figure, but he was just a very enlightened man, just like Buddha or Krishna or uh, uh, Muhammad or... Uh, name your founder of a religion. Uh, he was just another one, just another great wise teacher. And it's not, it's not centered in, in Christ. It's centered in the evolution of the soul and the uh, ascension of the soul. And everybody, Christianity is, is if you're, if you are in the kingdom, if you're a follower of Christ, if you're a Christian and you're baptized and you're saved and, and, or you're, uh, you've taken communion, you've in the Catholic church, you've, you've had your baptism, you've taken communion, your first communion, and you're part of the body of the church. You're safe. You're within its confines. You're saved. Okay. But you either are saved or you're damned. Um, a lot of the more kind of mushy, uh, new agey sounding, pseudo-spiritual ideals of, of modern day uh, 
the amalgamated melting pot of American ideas that's out there, the marketplace of ideas, right? In that sense, Jesus Christ was just a very wise, kind man with uh, uh, a lot of really cool sayings, and that was about all, which that that's going too far, I think, if one wishes to be uh, a Christian. I, I just can't. If you totally separate the need for faith out of the faith, you no longer have the faith. It's just in name only. Well, in any event, I'm not a Christian. I don't give a damn. That's not my axe to grind. But either way, uh, there, there are certain ideas that you have to adhere to, to be part of that culture and to, to, to be within its, its bounds and its definitions in that worldview. Right? So, um, I'm very interested in the more transgressive side of uh, our Abrahamic traditions. So, the mystics, the heretics, um, the failed Messiah, uh, Shabbatai Sfi of the Jews, um, somewhat interested in heresy in the Christian tradition as well, and mysticism, practitioners of underground magic, uh, the old ways. I'm very intrigued by these things. Um, it's not relevant to me whether or not it's real. It may be, I don't know, it may not be, it probably isn't. But it is real in that the practitioners have genuine experiences. They have visions. Psychologically and from a phenomenological point of view, okay, I don't give a damn if it's real or not objectively in terms of uh, can we scientifically measure it, blah, blah. If the person is having that experience and it's vivid to them and it's authentic, and I mean authentic in the traditional sense of the word, if it's real, and if it changes you, okay, how can I say it's all in your head, it's phony uh, and worthless? That experience is, I can't say that. What I can perhaps argue is that one has had a, a, a very powerful peak experience and an integrative psychic experience where you feel like you've communed with uh, some divine, extra, otherworldly presence, extrasensory, extra-dimensional outside of you. And that presence has interacted with you in a manner that's hard to describe or to define. And you've had tremendous amounts of knowledge downloaded into your brain as if from an outside source. And usually the result uh, after one comes out of this uh, experience with the divine or the feeling of the divinity, usually it brings good things. Uh, people become kinder, gentler, more empathic, more open, more open-minded. Even though they remain conservatives in their tradition, most of the, the greatest mystics were the most among the most conservative of the practitioners of the religion, but by virtue of their mystical experiences, they are also some of the most revolutionary and the ones most likely to bring change because they're respected because of their conservatism and their uprightness and their uh, faith and their righteousness. And yet the mysticism very often, and in some cases the her heretical, it takes people down a very strange road sometimes. Um, can, it can 
be a reflection of underlying mental illness and insanity. There's a difference between uh, a, a psychotic experience and an integrative positive experience of the divine, of the feeling of uh, uh, being outside of time, the warmth, um, like a waking dream. I'm very interested in those things. I have interest in psychology as well. My aim with this initial yammering uh, is to organize myself better over time. I both want to help you gain more knowledge. And I want to do this uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, for one of the foremost among them is I don't like the ivory tower and I don't like how they treat their students or the parents of the said students I think it's bordering on fraud uh, and or false advertising because they have everybody convinced that if you don't go to college you won't succeed in America okay that has been made true on account of the destruction, in many cases, of the business model where one can, uh, at 19 or 18, right at a high school, where you can walk into a factory or whatever uh, and become a tradesman or a craftsman's apprentice or take a few years in a trade school and learn a craft or a skill. Um, it seems that they've nearly entirely destroyed any system such as that inflated the costs of university tuition enormously, almost unfathomably high. Because for the administrators, and these are the administrators who have in the past, I, I think, by virtue of their failure to warn, I'm thinking of Virginia Tech in particular, these are the people who let him murder, uh, what is the number, 37 students? Okay. These people are the ones raising their own salaries and increasing the tuition every year. Okay. What are you paying for when you take out your student loans for $50,000, $60,000 for an undergraduate degree? What are you actually paying for, right? You're paying for Michel Foucault and Jacques Derrida. And in later episodes, I'll more clearly explicate Michel Foucault and Jacques Derrida. But to be very unfairly uh, to them, and I, because I want to give the devil his due, okay? To put it very loosely and very crudely, okay? They believe in challenging the status quo in all of its forms, good or bad, with the aim of eradicating that which they are speaking against. So, for instance, white privilege, right? In particular, white male privilege. The white male is the arch-villain of, of uh, postmodernism. And there, there can be no doubt that we white people are the descendants I'm saying this very carefully, OK? 
okay, we're the descendants of people who committed massive, unimaginable crimes and human genocide. Okay, I'd like to point out, though, although this doesn't exonerate uh, how we should view those in history who did the killing, I don't approve of erasing them from history, nor do I entirely approve of toppling them as the postmodernists wish to do and annihilating them entirely. Um, hang on, where was I? Always lose my train of thought. The postmodern wishes to confront with the idea of uh, destroying the bourgeoisie class. So the great arch-villain is white male, okay? But it's not because of what we're doing today en masse as a whole. It's because of what they did yesterday, which is horrible. And it has cast a long shadow. And there's been a concatenation of direct and indirect um, events that if you trace back the chain far enough, you can connect it to history. Okay? But I'm not ashamed to be a, a male human. I, I did not ask and had nothing to do with being born. And I take exception to people who, in general terms, immediately and automatically assume right away that I'm evil or that, that others are evil simply by virtue of belonging to what's defined by Michel Foucault and Jacques Derrida as, although they do use the word the bourgeoisie, they do use that. Um, the stand-in for the ruling classes is patriarchy. That's their project, okay, uh, is, is the, not even the argumentative, uh, not even to try to change the minds of people they see as misguided by, uh, by educating. Uh, at least there are some people who are less harsh, but I mean, what was that called in, in uh, uh, China, Cambodia, right? Vietnam? It was called re-education, folks, okay? Re-education, okay? <clears throat> to get you to follow the party line. But all parties do that. And all human beings, and all human beings believe they are right all the time. Even though 10 or 20 years later, I look back at a view that I held or an idea, an ideal even. And I ask myself how I could have been so incredibly stupid as to believe that idea or to... Uh, inspire and engage that idea with all of my energy that I had. When I look back and I can see how tremendously incorrect and in error that idea was, how misguided. Yet we all constantly feel as though I am right. Everybody does. And I think that uh, that can be very dangerous for obvious reasons. Okay, uh, so my hope is to, I know this one isn't as such, 
I hope to be entertaining. And I understand that this might not be the most entertaining start. Um, I hope to be entertaining as well as illuminating. Okay. Um, there are a lot of people out there. There are a lot of you who know as much or more than I. You might also have PhDs. You might have spent decades studying different philosophers. And one reaches a certain point at which you have to narrow down because there's simply way, way too much out there. And you have to pick your, your concentration. I've been fighting that for a long time. I do not like it. I don't like specialization. Um, and I don't like people concentrating on one element of one thinker at the expense of all the others. I, I believe the whole is greater than the, than the sum of its parts, okay? And greater than the parts as well. Uh, so uh, it's a kind of holism. Whole. Mm, um, the, there was a South African general uh, named uh, Smuts. Gosh, what was his first name? Um, holism in evolution. And he, he tried to create a philosophical unifying field theory, like in, like in physics, where you find the holy grail, the concept that you're able to define everything else by or against, your yardstick. Maybe there can't be one in, in uh, a discipline as nebulous as philosophy or as protean, okay? But it's good to try. And I think General Smuts, I've read two-thirds of that book, but only once. I have to finish the book and reread it. I think he's onto something. And I don't know if, I don't believe we've followed in his suggestions in our world today, uh, for the most part. Most modern thought um, is about specialization. Whereas I, I think humans benefit more from being Renaissance. And you have to have a solid foundation and you have to know yourself and you have to be honest with yourself. And you, uh, I think people benefit more from a wide variety of thinkers. They're not only reading the people they agree with, they're reading the people they disagree with. And I don't mean picking up a book and reading through it once and going, well, no, I mean deeply engaging the people you disagree with, as difficult and at times as unpleasant as that might be. You have to know what those people think because they might be right or they may be wrong. If they are wrong, it's our job to know their arguments so well that we can defend their arguments better than they themselves. Okay? Once we've achieved that grasp of, I know exactly where you're coming from, I understand your view, your perspective, your reasoning. I accept that you came to these ideas the same way I came to mine, through a natural curiosity. I accept that you mean well, uh, that you are engaging with me in this argument from a place of goodwill, even if you're a, a, a far-left, hard, radical, uh, postmodern, uh, intersectionality, um, social justice warrior, right? I still owe you my undivided attention and respect to uh, not miscategorize 
misconstrue, put words in your mouth, etc. Create a straw man for an argument. If my goal uh, is to gain ground in the argument, I need to know what I'm arguing against and why, precisely why. It may not be enough if I'm not skilled enough in argument to defeat the uh, interlocutor, but maybe I can. I tend to think a lot of postmodern thought is, is empty and vacuous and uh, ultimately destructive of uh, human beings, their hope, their aspirations. Because you're not supposed to win, you're all supposed to be equal. And who decides that, really? Who decides? Are we going to have a panel uh, that goes around making sure everybody's the same height? Are we going to be, you know, like Kurt, that story by Kurt Vonnegut, right? I hope most of you know that story by Kurt Vonnegut, uh, where the society, the strong and the smart, they are deliberately dumbed down and not to a moderate level where we could do fairly well for ourselves, but they're dumbed down to the absolute lowest level of stupidity that one can live at whether you're intelligent or, or not. And intelligence, by the way, it does not mean good. And it doesn't mean that one is wiser or kinder or more empathic. Intelligence is simply the swiftness of putting pieces together in a way that allows you to understand things and utilize them more quickly than your peers. Okay? The more intelligent you are, the faster you can do this. That's all it means. We'll have to argue about this, Chris. It'll be fun. Um, but that's all it is. Intelligence is, is how swiftly uh, can you put concepts together? How quickly can you master certain tasks? The more intelligent you are, the faster you can do this. Right? It has nothing to do with one's value as a human being. And... The culture wants us to believe this. We're, we're, we're trained in many ways to see, because we're always right, to see uh, more intelligent as an improvement, right? The further down the ladder you are. Now, how, how do I put this? From a purely human standpoint, okay, we all are valuable and even if it appears in some ways that one is giving nothing back that's uh, an error it's an error in judgment you you don't know even someone who's severely mentally challenged might give something back they might be very sweet or loving or they might be reached by these workers. And even though it's a small advance, it might be that these workers better learn how to be better human beings by taking care of these people who need to be taken care of. Sorry, they do. Um, perhaps as we have more smart technology, who knows, it may, it may improve their independence in the same manner that it's improved mine. Or, uh, uh, well, in any event, everybody, every human being has value and should be valued. 
That's not a statement of we're all equal. That's a statement of everyone has value and should be valued. That's all. Right? Because we're not equals. There aren't equals in nature. But in about 98% of the ways in which I am not your equal, I don't care. <laughs> okay? I don't want to be your equal in, in, in everything. Okay? I don't care. I don't want the plumber that I'm hiring to fix the broken water pump to be my equal. I want the bloody plumber to be able to fix the damned broken water pump, which I don't know how to do. So what do I do? I make up for my lack of equality by hiring them and giving them money and using their skills to solve my problem because I can't do it. And in about 98, I would say maybe even higher, right? I am not and will never be your equal, okay? That's why everywhere I go, uh, I am paying to lease people's brains, okay? Or to lease their skill sets, right? So I can have a better life. And this, this is the case in every transaction, uh, the, the, the truck driver. Well, I'm blind, I can't drive. Throw it on the truck, boys. Right, uh, the pilot, the brain surgeon, um, a cardiologist, uh, a professor in various subjects, uh, uh, a CEO, um, uh, an orchestra conductor, right, a violin player, etc. I mean, I could start making all these things and just throwing them out. Where uh, equality. If it were strictly enforced, I do not know by whom, and we lived in a society like North Korea, okay, we would all be equal in our slavery, in our enslavement, right? E equal in our enslavement. Uh, the postmodern thinkers, from my perspective as a disabled person, technically a minority, postmodernity doesn't address how to live a better life or be a better person. It addresses how do we level everyone so that everybody's equal. It used to be that people said when I went to school, initially I went to school in 1992, uh, there was a lot wrong with the world then, but nothing like what we're seeing now in a lot of social uh, deteriorating empath uh, entropy. We didn't have that back then. So when I first went to college, even though Derrida's name would come up, okay, no one took him seriously, I don't think. I'd like to believe that no one did, because it was ludicrous what he was saying. And it's, all, it's ludicrous from start to finish, okay? You were encouraged to study both sides of an issue and think for yourself about it. Um, I would like to replicate that here as best I can. Uh, Although I also want to entertain, and I definitely have come to my own conclusions, which I will express them as my conclusions or my opinions. I'm perfectly willing to, at every turn, um, as best I can, be transparent. Well, this is, this is my opinion. Uh, well, this is my expert and well-informed opinion. This is my emotional and uninformed opinion, perhaps. Um, in nearly all cases. 
if we were to meet, I would be learning from you or hiring your services. But let's say, I mean, um, ultimately, my goal with this is to entertain and to educate, right? To entertain and to educate. And, I mean, what do they call me? The rogue philosopher. I did not select that name for myself. It, <laughs> there were uh, uh, some interviews that I did, and in the comment section, uh, people who responded to my words called me the rogue philosopher, or the rebel philosopher, but rogue sounds better. And so ultimately, most, most of my uh, ideas are outside the academy, my conclusions uh, I'm probably a rogue that <laughs> won't really affect much change in the system there. But I won't support it. I refuse to support it or to prop it up. Uh, you know, like, um, give her credit. Ayn Rand, uh, John Galt said, if you, and so did Tolstoy, by the way, if you don't approve of a certain system of government, do not support it. Do not support it. If something is immoral or, or criminal or illegal or misguided or violent or what have you, or deceiving, do not support it. Do not give it your time, your energy, or your money. Do not support it. Do not. If, if it's truly an aberration and deeply sick, it will run its course quickly, uh, one would hope. And I would like to believe that uh, philosophy can save itself because I think if we lose philosophy for good, um, and it's been around since the beginning of writing, right there with theology and magic and uh, law and uh, primitive jurisprudence, like I said, law, or diplomacy. Uh, these are major, okay, major human skill sets that we need. Uh, as important as knowing how to read and write, knowing how to think critically about issues is the most important skill you'll have. Um, I've been on for almost an hour. I do beg your pardon, all of you. That's what I hope to encourage and to strengthen in, in, in us, in myself also. It's easy to be sucked up and carried along by popular culture. None of us are entirely immune or untouched by it. Uh, we can resist it, fortunately. Thank God. Um, that and to entertain. The most important element is, I think, if you boil it down to... Uh, a minimal definition of my purpose. It will be to entertain first and foremost, if I can, but also to hopefully impart knowledge and understanding, even wisdom. Uh, there are a lot of, I haven't found them all, there are a lot of really good lectures out there also about handicapped, being disabled, uh, and blindness. There are a lot of good podcasts out there about blindness as well. Probably 
all of them better than anything I'm going to be doing here. Um, but I'm not going to not do it because someone else might be doing a better job than me. Uh, that's that that's idiocy, right? Um, going to do it anyway, uh, and with the utmost respect for everyone else in this field, and there are some over the next podcasts that that I'll recommend to you. They're excellent, and I I I give you my greatest respect. So. I will cover a wide range of topics, I hope someday in the near future, to engage with such audience as comes my way, if I can. Uh, Long-term goals cover a wide wide range of issues. So uh, I'm not always going to want to talk about different philosophers. I might want to talk about theologians or different theologies. I might be responding to something going on in the news and uh, approach that from uh, philosophical discussions. Although I'm not a moral philosopher, I'm, I'm really, really my interest has always been more metaphysical. What is real? And in most cases, metaphysics is pretty mushy and has no boundaries, and it, it's almost a waste of time to engage in a lot of it. But I think phenomenology helps restore dignity to the mystic and the peak experience uh, Maslow's peak experience, or uh, Maslow's peak experiences, or Richard M. Buke's cosmic consciousness. Okay, I'm very fascinated by that, and I think phenomenology has redeemed a lot of that because we, for a while, uh, the materialist Marxist-Leninist dialectic. along with just very basic American pragmatism. It almost sounds sacrilege that I'm even putting those two in, in a sentence. But I, I do so because they both... Practic, pragmatism elevates common sense. Um, but in a sense, they both in, in, uh, encourage a kind of materialism. But especially villainous is Marxist-Leninist materialism. Marxist-Leninist dialectic. For a while, we had a climate um, that would not allow anyone to seriously study Western esotericism, for example. Anything emotional or too romantic or anything to do with, to do with magic or the occult if you were an academic studying these things, your peers would expect you to be doing those things, thus compromising your objectivity. I think phenomenology has restored a lot of the dignity uh, of the people having these experiences and of and psychology too. Phenomenology, um, Heidegger actually had a massive influence, although I have huge problems with Heidegger. But you also had other phenomenologists who reminded us that ultimately what you have in reality is the subject, the embodied experiencing subject. 
interacting with the world through their body and their sensory input, okay? You start with the person. It's human-centered. And it's not human-centered in, let's study humans. It's human-centered in, how do we experience the world? How does it reveal itself to us? How do we... How do we... Uh, experience bodily consciousness? Okay? Bodily consciousness. Right? And that is bodily consciousness. Right now, you're looking at something. And this is so because if your eyes work, they're always receiving input information. But it might be that you don't see what you're really looking at because your train of thought is concentrating on different subjects. And if you look around, you're going to see, and you're only going to see, those items that have to do with what it is that you're interested in. In other words, your vision is not passive. It is active, and it is a skill. Seeing, you're not just born seeing, right? And more, you cannot see yourself seeing. So phenomenology, it borrowed a little bit from Kant. It borrowed a little bit from God help us, it borrowed a little from Hegel. Uh, but it derives much, especially in Heidegger. Husserl was on a different track, and ultimately, I think, probably a more intellectually honest one, since he wasn't a Nazi. Uh, the, the, um, the starting point is my relation to the world, being in the world. The phenomenologist Heidegger was right about that. Um, so we're not so worried about objectivity. Okay, it, it, it has its purpose and its place, and it's, it's science is a good thing. But a phenomenologist doesn't isn't studying with the idea necessarily of expressing an objective assertion. Um, that's not always satisfying because you're not going to be given answers. It's not, to me, it certainly isn't always satisfying because I want to know what is real. But the, the way that feels like the most intellectually healthy and honest way for me to pursue that maybe eternally unanswerable question what is real because it arises from my experiences in my body in the world utilizing tools your eyes are your tools like your hands seeing is a skill you learn how to see you're learning all the time how to see better uh, it's an active it's an active interacting with the world as you are an embodied being interacting with the world. Hearing is a passive sense. Okay? You can plug your ears, but that's a manual action apart from your hearing. You can blink your eyes. You control that directly. You can shut off the flow of input if you want. 
You can't do that as easily with your ears. You plug them, clog them up. But hearing happens, uh, it happens, you get all of it. The brain is able to filter out, like in seeing, the stuff that you aren't as interested in. But it's still a passive act of filtering. It's not an act of seeking. Seeing is seeking. Seeing is, is um, engaging. It's an active um, it's um, it's using a tool. It's utilizing your eyes to guide your hands to give you what you want or need. What your vision is is oriented on is almost always crystallized around your desire, right? Or a person's uh, desire, whatever that desire might might be. And hence, one has uh, experiences and emotional content, uh, qualia. A lot of these things are called by the the analytics called qualia. We do well to use that. Um, these are the different. Um, what's a good word? Attributes. The texture of an experience. Okay, the different attributes. Whereas an analytic thinker, their goal will be initially to say, okay, look, what, what's really going on on the ground here? Um, we have to determine uh, reality. We don't want to go by subjective dreams visions. We actually want something that we can reproduce and it works every single time, right? Empirical evidence, uh, uh, building, building on universal physical laws, physics, whatever they may be. Um, and it has to be consistent. That's what universal means, consistency. So whether I'm here or on uh, that planet that orbits its star every day, it's traveling at like, what, 80,000 80, miles per hour or something incredibly ridiculous like that. It orbits its, its sun every day. And it's, it's, uh, it's not spinning. So the day side is blasted by the star and the night side is, is not. It's frozen. Well, in any event... Um, I'm not sure how I got onto the topic of talking about stars and orbits. Um, the analytics are interested in what is there, I think, matter. Uh, all philosophers are interested in being and in, um, well, all except for postmodern, are interested in human beings. How can we be better human beings? Or... In the case of Heidegger, how can we be more authentic to our destiny? Because that's what Heidegger means by authenticity. You and I use that word, and it means real. Uh, usually authentic is associated with objects or experiences of wealth. Right? Authentic. That's an authentic Rembrandt. Right? That's... that's uh, um, that's an authentic 
um, uh, an, a, a policy, a political idea guided by authenticity, realism, for instance. It, authentic is, is truthful, honest, veritas. Okay. In Heidegger, authenticity means you're born with a destiny. Oftentimes, your destiny is, is built around your work, your, your, uh, for the sake of. Okay? So I'm doing this perhaps for the sake of, I'd like to utilize the 10 years of my life that I threw away getting a PhD in philosophy and religious studies. Actually, it's eight years, but for the sake of okay, being a better person in terms of my grasp of philosophy. Some of you may be out there and you're working hard, real hard, for the sake of your children or your family. That's your role. You're, you have your role. You're a father or a mother. You're, are we still allowed to say that? Um, you're a worker. Uh, you're a project manager. Uh, you're a teacher. For the sake of, right? Heidegger is all about that contextual. Why are you doing this? What are you doing and why? For the sake of, okay? And the ability that you utilize to do it if you're doing it well, you won't even be aware that the tool you're using will vanish in your hand and you'll, you'll feel like it's, it's a part of you and an extension of you. But if the thing breaks or the work is interrupted or the flow is broken, then you're fully aware uh, of the tool that you're using. Heidegger liked to talk about hammers. I think I wouldn't, I wouldn't, presume to try to think of a better example than Heidegger's. It's a good one. It's good enough. But your vision, when you're in your flow and you're seeing only what you need to see to achieve your task, you lose awareness of looking. You aren't aware anymore of seeing, of selectively choosing. It's, it's happening so automatically that you forget your eyes um, and you're just connected to, you're just connected to what you're seeing. You cannot see yourself seeing. You could look into a mirror and, and look into your eyes or whatever, but you can't, you cannot, you can experience what you see. Like, uh, let's say you're having fun and you're watching the fireworks. Why would you want to disrupt that experience uh, and try to see yourself seeing? You wouldn't even care. Why? Why would you do that? Nobody would do that. But I digress, and I want to bring it back to my main point of this um, opening to what I hope becomes a conversation, eventually. I think, unfortunately, it'll be lecture format for a while. Um, that's not my ultimate goal, and it's not my ultimate product. I want to provide more than a lot of lectures. There are excellent lecturers on every topic that I'll ever raise who are better than I. The lecturers that I listen to, I'd sooner recommend them uh, before filling you with uh, yammering bullshit into your ears. Right. My ultimate goal, though, is to entertain and to educate. Uh, or at least by entertaining, elevating entertainment. Okay, with the higher purpose of, of lifting or opening up the people in my audience, right? Like the Aristotelian in the Poetics. Okay, they, uh, they, um, you, 
you raise your audience in its empathy, in its humanity, hopefully with the goal of opening the way for improvement, my own ex- ex- included as well. So today's episode, sponsored by the Invisible College of Sorcerers, the Pleroma, the Tetragrammaton, and Cogliostro's Bones. They walled him up in, um, I don't remember the exact year without looking, they walled up Cogliostro and he died behind the walls. Yeah. I wonder if they even know where his bones are now. Well, in any event, he didn't do a good enough job conning his, his audience like Mesmer did. Uh, well, in any event, I'll bring this to a close now. I think I've said far too much, and I appreciate your indulgence. Uh, if you've listened to me up until now, or if you've listened to me for three minutes, thank you very much. And let's call that a wrap.